Well, good morning, everyone. And I'm glad each one of you are here. And um, a couple announcements. We have an adult dinner night coming out this week at Nestle Coast. There's a sign-up sheet in the bulletin board. Put your name down if you'd like to make it. We'd love to have you come. And also, the women's luncheon is coming up this Saturday, and you still have time to sign up. It's not only for those that are secret sisters. Any woman, uh, you know, can come to it. And maybe you have a friend you'd like to bring along. So just put their name on there. We need to know the number because we're having it. I'm saying we. I'm not even going to be there. But it's going to be catered and, um, by Twin Trees. So put your name down. You know, um, I thought it would be a nice time to say something about our mothers. You know, this is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, ladies. And um, I just want to give some of you men, some of you husbands, some advice. Um, I've been married nearly 49 years, known the same woman just about 50 years. And, um, and so, number one, you have to understand why Mother's Day is in May. It's to prepare you for, for Father's Day in June. I mean, you know that as well. But anyway, you have to understand, guys, that mothers and wives have a great sense of humor. A little different than ours, but they have a great sense of humor. For instance, when they ask, what do you want for dinner? What they really mean is, I haven't made anything and I expect you to take me out. Now, these are the kinds of things you need to learn. And when they ask, how do I look? You have to think very quickly to try to figure out the answer that they want to hear. Because if you say you look great, they'll say they don't. If you say, well, you could do this, then they'll say, why don't you like what I'm wearing? So you just got to kind of figure out what they want to, want to hear. And when they say, can you give me a hand? You have to understand that's not a question. It's a direct command. <laughs> and so you need to just jump right to it. And um, also... Guys, you might have understood this, uh, have experienced this before, and, you, and you'll understand. You've been saving and saving to buy that electronic device you really wanted. You finally saved up enough money, you get it out of your bunkie fund, and you put it in the checking account, and the next day you get an email that says, it's an email from Amazon that says, Dear Vi, your order has been confirmed and it's on its way. Why is Vi laughing so much about that one? <laughs> And, and then women also play little tricks in their husbands. You have to understand that. And, uh, for instance, um, they always change the direction of the toilet paper. You know, you want it to come out the top, they have it come out at the bottom. But the worst trick is when you're in your, in your time of deepest need, you look, and there's no toilet paper at all. It's been put into the spare ba uh, bathroom because guests are coming. That's the worst one at all. Now, also... One of the things that women like doing, it's their favorite thing to do, is they turn on the washing machine and the dishwasher just before you take your shower. I mean, that's a, that's a common thing that they do as well. And uh, one of my favorites that women do, this is one of my very favorites, and I don't know how many of you have pa napkin holders in your house. Women pack the napkin holders so tight that when your hands are full and you're trying to grab a napkin, the whole bunch comes out. I'm just trying to give you guys some good advice, you know, to understand. So anyway, my little humor there. And, um, you know, Mother's Day was actually started by uh, uh, Christian women. 
And it was during the Civil War, and a lot of you might not realize that Virginia was split between West Virginia and Virginia because the part we now call West Virginia was on the side of the north and Virginia was on the side of the south. But there was actually Christian women, a pastor's and a pastor's daughter, and other women that actually went and they helped. They had a day a week that they, they called it Mother's Day, where they helped mothers of, uh, whose husbands were in the war, whose husbands were killed. And they continued this even after the war to help bring unity between the state, between the North and the South, those that fought on the side of the North and the South. And then it was, I think it was in 1914 that it was finally declared. And this one, the daughter of this woman, of this pastor's wife who uh, started what we would call Mother's Day, petitioned and petitioned. And finally, it was, I I think, I don't remember who the president was, Hoover, I think, but it was passed as an official holiday. So it really had uh, a wonderful Christian uh, reasoning behind it, and it was a w- women giving of themselves to help children. And so it was a, a beautiful story. If you go online, now, if you go online, you have to make sure you go to the right spot because they completely negate the whole Christian part of it. And they just, all they like to bring out is that the women were pacifists. Well, they were, but they're also true born again Christians. And um, so, anyway. It's interesting because uh, in our Wednesday night Bible study, we're in Hebrews chapter 13, and uh, one of the questions that I asked this past Wednesday was, why do you think God puts such importance on the sanctity of marriage? And it's because God intended the family to be the basic unit for his purpose on earth, for serving him on earth. I mean, you can't go into the scripture and not see that. It is not good for man to be alone. And so he created them male and female, and we come together as husbands and wives, as, as mothers and fathers, to minister to our family, but also to minister to the world around us. It's interesting that it tells us that um, a man who marries a good wife is able to accomplish more than he can by himself. The mathematical understanding or physic, from physics, it's called synergism, where Two people, like one person can lift 100, another person can lift 100, together they can lift 300. And so that whole portion in Corinthians is talking about, you know, um, the two becoming one for the purpose of uh, doing the work of the ministry. And also, um, one of the things that we have to understand, there are three primary ingredients in the family that we're talking about here. There's God, and there's fathers, and there's mothers. And... You'll find this if you study Scripture, and I'm going to share some that will um, prove this to be true. God ordained mothers as the keepers of the home, and the one who sets the attitude in the home, as the father should be the one who sets the priorities of the home. And Scripture makes it clear the great importance of wives and mothers that we find in Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord. Again, in Second Timothy chapter one, verses five through six, I call to remember remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you. So, credit is being given for true Christian faith being transferred down through the matriarchal line rather than the patriarchal. And then in Proverbs one nine, I find this interesting. And it says, My son, 
hear the instructions of your father. Now listen, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a grateful ornament, a graceful ornament on your head and a chain around your neck. So ladies, you are so important, and uh, we appreciate you so much. And I hope that you all have a wonderful day. Now, the tradition in our family, and I'm not expecting all of you to do this uh, this year. But anyway, uh, Frank and I, we do all the cooking and all the cleanup for Mother's Day. And then for Father's Day, we do all the cooking and all the cleanup. But like my wife says, that's just two days a year. So (laughs) Now, let's... Get serious, and we'll get to today's portion. We're in Exodus 37. Exodus 37. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we thank you so much for your word, because your word is true. And I ask, Heavenly Father, as we break open this portion of Scripture, you would reveal to us all of the deep implications and all the encouragement that we find in it. I pray, Father, that you would anoint and use me to minister to these, your precious people, that the words I speak truly would not be my own, but yours, to encourage them in the faith. And I ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, in relationship to our study today, um, we realize that God called Bezalel personally, by name. And that should be very encouraging to us because what it shows us is God knows us and ministers to us personally. He knows us individually, not just as a whole. Of course, his church as a whole is his bride, but each one of us, each part of the church, he knows personally. And just like with Bezalel, he called us to a particular task that he empowers and also gives us the knowledge to do. That's the Word of God. So in Exodus chapter 37, starting with verse 1, then Bezalel... Bezalel, Bezalel, I always get that mixed up, uh, made the ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits was its length, about four feet, a cubit and a half its width, two and a half feet, and a cubit and a half its height, two and a half feet, and he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold to be set in the four corners, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side. And uh, he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. And he put the poles into the rings of the sides of the ark to bear the ark. Now, one of the things that's interesting is uh, when we get a little bit further on, all the other um, you know, furnishings of the tabernacle, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and so forth, once they were put in place, the poles were taken out. The Ark of the Covenant never had the poles taken out. And we'll find out there's reason for that. There's spiritual understanding for that as we get along, as we go further. And probably the poles of the Ark of the Covenant were long enough to, to hold at least two guys on each, on each end. So eight altogether. Because we figure that this Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top of it and all this gold inside and outside and so forth was hundreds of pounds. You know, a lot more than just four guys could carry. So it was probably set up so eight guys can carry it. And uh, the traditional teaching is that in the tabernacle in the wilderness, in the tent, that the ends of the poles actually stuck out the end of the tabernacle. Whether that's true, I don't know. Now, and um, 
verse 6. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits was its length, and a cubit and a half its width. In other words, it fit exactly on top of the ark. He made two cherubim of beaten gold. I don't know if you've noticed that before. It's beaten gold. There's a difference. Like when you just mold gold or you just, you know, form it with a tool, it's very smooth and shiny. But have you ever seen uh, artwork that was beaten? You know, they used like a hammer kind of or whatever. to, And it just has a beautiful appearance to it. You know, it's not just real smooth. And so it very specifically tells us here, cherubim of beaten gold, he made them of one piece, all the two ends of the mercy seat, at, at, one at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherubim at one end uh, on this side, and the other cherubim at, uh, the other, uh, at the other end on the other side. And he made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. So the mercy seat and the cherubim were all made with one piece. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings, and they faced one another. The faces of the cherubim were toward the mercy seat, because we have to remember we're going to find out in this portion, but also in Exodus 25, 16 through 22, that the glory of God dwelt between the two angels on the mercy seat, the glory of God. Now, it's very encouraging to find that these measurements that are given here in this portion of Scripture are exactly the same as the measurements given in Exodus 25, verses 10 through 30. And this shows us at least two things. God doesn't change his mind, and he has a purpose for whatever he does. And so when the Lord has spoken to us about anything, he doesn't change his mind. And he has a purpose for what he's, you know, shared with us to do. Sometimes the Lord gives us a command or shows us what to do and tells us to do this or that. And we don't even know why. But it is very expedient to do what the Lord has shown you to do. And he doesn't change his mind. Oftentimes he'll tell us more than once. And um, it makes me think of how the Lord has instructed us. How has he instructed us? He hasn't changed his mind on that as well. And he has instructed us to go out and make disciples of all nations. Our primary responsibility as believers is to make disciples of all nations. And one of the things that we have to understand is that we were created to worship God. And because we worship him and because he comes down and empowers us by his Holy Spirit and enables us to have this intimacy with him, this worship with him, our natural outflow of the heart is to share that love and to share that mercy with everyone we come in contact with. And so we have to realize God has called us to be his witnesses. And everywhere we go, every situation we find ourselves in, We're his witnesses. Even if we don't have a chance to come out and lay out the four spiritual laws or whatever, but we're his witnesses just by the way we live, by the way we act, by the way we are. Now understand this, and we're going to look a little bit more deeply at this in a moment. It doesn't mean that we're going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. Not one. There's only one who ever walked this terrestrial ball who is perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. That's it. And so the point is that our witness to the world around us isn't our perfection. Our witness to the world around us is God's grace and mercy and love. 
For instance, if you're trying to be a good witness to a fellow worker and you have one day that you just acted like a jerk, do you know what the remedy is? To go up to the person that you acted like a jerk to and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have acted like a jerk. Please forgive me. And they're going to look at you and think, what's wrong with that person? No one ever says they're sorry anymore. But the reality is because we're forgiven, we know that God can also cause others to have a, a, a grateful attitude or a graceful attitude towards us if we seek their forgiveness. Graceful. Their grace. You know, coming from God. So it's important for us to realize that we are to be his witnesses. And um, also... The Lord has spoken to us oftentimes more than once about certain things. And some, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Lord speaks to you about something and you just kind of let it go. Then he speaks to you about it again and you kind of let it go. Then he speaks to you again. When the Lord is repeating himself, it's never because he's changed his mind or he has new instructions. He's just trying to get us to do what he initially called us to do. And so be aware of that. If you have... You know, have you ever had a time that you just felt like you had some prompting to do this or to do that? Often that's the Lord. And a lot of times when the Lord gives us these promptings, we don't want to do it because it seems like it would be embarrassing or we'd be making a spectacle of ourselves or whatever. But we must do it. You know... And I, I, I shared this with you before, I don't know how many times, but I remember when I was uh, first saved and I was teaching at Horseheads High School at the time. And um, this is going to seem really weird for some of you younger people, but we actually, our faculty rooms were segregated between men and women. You had a men's faculty room, you had a women's faculty room. <laughs> they didn't have to share the same faculty room. Isn't that strange to you guys? But anyway... Uh, there, after I got saved, there was this one teacher that just loved to razz me. Just, you know, whenever I'd walk in the faculty room, he'd go, he'd go like this, praise the Lord, you know. And he was just downright mean to me, would say things like that. And uh, finally one day I lost my temper and I knocked him down over the table and I had my arm cocked and I was going to punch him right square in the face. And... I just felt such a check and like such an idiot to doing that. And I just went back to my room, and I couldn't have any, I just didn't have any peace. The Lord was just speaking to me over and over and over again to go and apologize. So I finally went down into the faculty room, and I went up to the guy, and I said, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have done that, please forgive me. He told me what I could do, and he never said, I forgive you, but that doesn't make any difference. You understand what I'm saying? The very fact that you do what the Lord has called you to do is what matters. And I have no idea how the Lord worked that in his, hearts, in his heart, you know, years later. I have no idea. And also, um, the ark that we're looking at here contained the ark of the covenant. The ark contained the law. And when you think of how beautifully it was constructed, Acacia wood was a beautifully rich grained hardwood and that's why it would be so sturdy and it was overlaid with gold inside and outside and had a border put around it do you realize how beautiful that would have looked and what was contained in it well one of the main things that was contained in it was the law 
And what it shows to us is how beautiful and perfect the law is. As a matter of fact, we know Scripture tells us in Romans 7:12, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. That's what Scripture tells us. But then you have to remember what was above the ark, what was placed on it, was the mercy seat, which was even more beautiful. It was also a case you would overlay with gold, but it had the single piece, the whole top was made of a single piece with the two cherubim facing one another, their wings spread out, and it had a band of, of decorative gold around it. So the mercy seat was even more beautiful. And I believe what the Lord is showing us is even when we look at how beautiful the law is, it can only be accessed through grace and mercy. That was the top. That was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And it shows to you and I as believers how beautiful God's grace and mercy is for us personally. It's only by grace that we're saved, not of works. We can't do it. If you're trying to find, uh, if you're trying to find a, re- a way to God and to develop a relationship with the Lord by your own works, you're going to be very, very dissatisfied. And um, remember, the law was only a shadow of the things to come, right? And um, Jesus Christ is, of course, the perfect answer to the law, because only in Jesus can the law be fulfilled, not in perfection but spiritually, because we're trusting the Lord for his redemption in those areas that we fall short. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, this is the one I just read, uh, you know, quoted a moment ago, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This grace can only be obtained through faith, believing God, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, and that uh, not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, least anyone should boast. Because, you, you see, if we could work it out on our own, we'd be bragging about it. Well, I'm going to heaven, I'm a Christian because I'm so great. It's not of works. He's done it all. There's not one of us that can boast or claim that we have some kind of right to salvation. As a matter of fact, when we examine our own lives, we know that the only right we have is to damnation. We were on a fast road to hell until we met Jesus Christ, and he gathered us up in his arms, you know, as a mother eagle, and he has given us eternal life. Now, consider what was placed in the ark. And I'm going to take these three things that were placed in the ark and try to give some understanding to them. And if you want to find out the three things that were placed in the ark, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Keep your finger here. But you can turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and go to verse 4. Hebrews 9 verse 4. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, and we're picking up with verse 4. Hebrews 9 4. And it says this in Hebrews 9, starting with verse 4, The ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that held the manna. So obviously they've taken some of the manna uh, that God so graciously gave to the children of Israel, and they put it in a golden pot. And what was unusual, remember what happened to any manna that was kept overnight? It was filled with worms and it stunk. This manna didn't. Because it was the command of God to take some of the manna, put it in a golden pot, and put it 
in the in the Ark of the Covenant. Also in the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So first, let's look at the manna, the golden pot of manna. Manna is the food that God sent from heaven to feed the children of Israel in the wilderness when they were hungry, when they were starving. Now go to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, and go to verse 32. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. And one of the points he's making here is it was a tradition of the Jews to say, Moses gave us bread from heaven. Moses didn't give them bread from heaven. God did. And um, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's, that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, he makes it clear, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Wow, he, he gives the answer. There's no question. Well, how do we know Jesus is... Well, Jesus said he was. And it's interesting because the manna was kept in a golden pot to show how beautiful this bread is. But think about this. The bread from heaven, Jesus Christ, is kept in our heart, in our inner man. Think of how much more beautiful that is. Because that bread from heaven, which nourishes us and gives us eternal life and feeds us and gives us the energy to share this love to those around us, this is a bread that was meant to be shared. What a beautiful thing it is. And it was only a shadow. Remember, the man, it was only a shadow of that which was to come. And the substance, it tells us in Scripture, is Jesus Christ. Every one of you who is sitting in here, who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have called upon his name by his Holy Spirit, the Lord dwells in your heart. He's there right now. How amazing is that? Now, as far as Aaron's rod that budded, some of you might be thinking, what's that all about? Well, we'll be getting to that in Numbers, but just to give you a little idea, in Numbers 17, 8 it says, It came to pass, and I'll, I'll explain to you what this is all about in a moment. And it came to pass on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witnesses, and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds that produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. Well, what this was all about was envy. Because you had 12 tribes, and each tribe had their own leader, and they couldn't understand why Aaron of the tribe of Levi, Levi was the only one who could be high priest. Why couldn't the leader from other tribes be high priest? And so, you know, Moses, of course, was becoming very frustrated with these people, and the Lord spoke to Moses, and it said, have every one of the leaders take their staff and place it in the tent of meetings. Now, staff like that, shepherd's staff. 
but everyone carried a staff. All the leaders, especially, it was a sign of their authority. They had a staff. And so they placed it in the tent of meetings. And the prayer was that whichever staff but it would be the one God truly had elected or chosen for this position. And so that's what we're reading about here in Numbers. Moses comes in, and not only did the staff bud, but it produced almonds, mature almonds. And what that shows us is God has an election in the sense that he chose Aaron to be the high priest and for his line to continue after him to be the priest of God. And we have to realize that what it tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, it says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent, listen to this, to make your call an election sure. So the butt at rod is a demonstration of election. And every one of us as believers, we want to be the elective Christ. And it says, therefore, make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For uh, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how do we become elect of the Lord? Very simple. In Romans 10, 13, it says this. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That Greek word can also be changed to elect. So whoever who calls upon the name of the Lord will be elect. So if you want to be elect, if you want to be, wanted to be, if you want to be one of the elect, call upon the name of the Lord, and you'll be saved. And you're one of the elect. You have the right to enter into the kingdom of heaven, just as Aaron's staff butted and gave him the right to be the high priest. Now, the tablets of the law, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verses 8 through 11, it says this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. When we think of the law, we think, well, the law was made for these righteous people that they can walk and live by it and brag about it. No, it's telling us that isn't whom the law was made for. It was made for every kind of sinner you can imagine. Why? Because until you realize you have a need, you'll never seek help. You know, Vi and I were talking about this the other day, and, and uh, back a million years ago, it seems like anyway, when I was taking anatomy and physiology in college, one of the things that our professor, Professor Schick, I can still remember his name. Can you believe that? But one of the things that Professor Schick told us or taught us when we were doing the physi physiology part of anatomy, he said, pain is your friend because you have God created. He didn't say this. I'm saying this. God created the body in such a way with such perfection that he allowed these sensors to be fired when there's something wrong. There's a condition, I, I think it's called uh, dysautonomia. And it, believe it or not, it only happens 
uh, to people of the Semitic race, Jewish race. And the symbol uh, for this disease is a tear because they're unable to, to cry. The problem with this disease is you feel no pain at all. And you might think, well, that's great. Well, no, it's not great because you could have a broken bone and you just keep going. You don't feel any pain. You could have some serious illness. You never go to, to see your physician because you have no pain. Pain's your friend. And so we have to realize that God allows us to see our need so that we seek help. A person feels pain, they go to the doctor. We feel the pain of our sin, we realize we need help. We look at the law and we realize we're unlawful. And we realize that judgment hangs over our head. And so consequently, the only remedy there is, is to go to the great physician, who is the only one who's able to give us the cure, salvation through Jesus Christ. Though your sin be as scarlet, you'll be made as white as snow. That's the God we serve. There is no one who is exempt from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is no sin that have, you have ever committed that cannot be fully forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have to understand we seek help when we realize we need help. And also the thing that's so interesting to me is the only way, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the only way the ark of these good things could be entered is through the mercy seat. And it's so wonderful to understand that no one is justified on their own merit, only by the redemption of judgment that is coming upon all sinners, and that's through Jesus Christ. And once again, in Romans 11:6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is not work. You're thinking, what in the world is this trying to tell us? What it simply points out is we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it in our own works. It's totally a gift from God. And so the, the, the realization that we are sinners is not a bad thing. The realization we're sinners is a very positive thing in the, in the sense that it makes us realize our need. And here's what we always have to understand, brothers and sisters. It would be a wonderful thing that on the day you got saved, you never sinned again. Wouldn't it be? Well, I've been saved for 42 years. I haven't sinned in 42 years. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But it's not true. Why do you think it tells us that his mercies are new every morning? Because think about this. You've probably heard this little analogy before, but I love it. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. You know, you're supposed to get 40 lashes, and you say, mercy, mercy. Okay, you're not going to get it. You don't get what you deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is getting what we don't deserve. We don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve eternal life. We don't deserve all the glories of the kingdom to come. But we're getting it anyway. We're not getting condemnation. We're not getting judgment. We're not being sent to hell. But boy, we are getting an everlasting kingdom. That's good to know for us to understand. And so we have to understand that this point is so important for us to realize is that there's nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. So many people want to do that. Or they make the mistake of saying, well, I, I got saved by grace through faith. But now, I'll take it from here. Well, good luck. 
because you're not going to go very far. You're not going to do a very good job. That's why it tells us his mercies are new every morning. Every morning, Jesus, give me a new start. And the wonderful thing is he does. You notice like some of you young people might not know what I'm talking about. Some of you older ones would. A big thing when I was a kid is you had this like black wax. It was like a, a, a little tablet and it had this clear piece of paper that went over it and you had a little wooden pen and when you wrote on it it made you could write on the on the wax and it would come right on on the paper and it looked cool you can make designs write your name or whatever then you took the wax paper and you went and it was all clear everything was gone and you put it back down and you start over again well every single morning the holy spirit goes (laughs) clears it right off All those sins, all those shortcomings, they're gone. And he gives you a fresh new start. And understand this, and I'll close with this. Even though God gives us new starts, fresh beginnings, it doesn't mean that we don't deal with some difficulties. You know, it's kind of like if you go out and get into a fight and somebody breaks your nose, the next morning you wake up and ask for God's forgiveness for being violent, for getting into a fight and maybe being drunk, whatever it was. God forgives you. But guess what? You still have a broken nose. It's going to take time for that to heal. So I don't want to make it seem so glib that when we're seeking God's grace and forgiveness and mercy that it's all just... Sometimes there's some things that we have to work through. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes there's some healing that really needs to take place. But know this. He is a great physician, and he will heal you completely. And he will forgive you. He forgives you completely the moment you ask. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And First John 1, 9, you know my favorite verse. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. And a lot of people forget this next part, which is the most important part. He's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that awesome? Can you imagine if you didn't have a shower? Can you imagine if you couldn't take a shower for two years? I mean, just think of how you'd feel. Just think of how you'd smell. But the reality is we can jump in the shower every day and get cleaned all off, put on our baby powder and be all fresh, our old spice, drive my children nuts but anyway with my cologne but anyway um the point is do all that stuff every day well god does even a better job than that he completely washes us clean purifies us from all unrighteousness and gives us a new start how awesome father we come before you in jesus name and we thank you for your word and the way it speaks to our heart and encourages us and father i i just want to pray a special blessing upon all the women of our church and all the mothers, all the women, all the, all the wives. And, and I pray your blessing to be upon them and to encourage them that this would just be a special day for them. And so, Lord, come in all of your presence and glory and just give them a reward of yourself. And, Father, I pray that the things that we covered this morning would be applied to our heart, lives, and souls. And I ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.